0: Go ahead. Open your Bibles. Head over to James chapter two this morning. Uh, James has been teaching us uh, recently that there is a profession of faith that is not real faith, not saving faith, and he gives these four case studies I, I mentioned last week on this very important point. We we looked at the first one last week, right? That. That if a, a brother, a sister, a fellow Christian is in need and you see their need and you can provide for their need, and yet you refuse to, to help them, unwilling un, uh, to do so, that that is a, a sign of, of false faith, right? There's something lacking in that sense. Uh, today we're going to consider the, uh, the second case study. And I, I wanted to do this, if I'm completely honest, I wanted to do this because 20 years ago during seminary, I came upon this verse and was absolutely in, intrigued with it, James 2.19. And I did a deep dive into this verse and found it really beneficial, found it intriguing. And, and so recently, as I'm going through this, I dug up my old notes from, from going through this and learning about this. This is back in my, my 20s, right, which is a long time ago now. I'm 44. Someone was asking today, when middle, middle life or what is it? Uh, middle age begins. I, I told her 40, right? That's, anyone disagree with that? Like the day you turn 40? No? Your whole body will hurt when you turn 40. It's just what happens. Um, man, I want your attitude. Okay. Uh, anyway, I found it so beneficial to my soul kind of going through these notes that I, I wanted to take this time and just just go into this one verse, which is a little different than we usually do. We usually take a little, a little bigger section and, and do that. Uh, I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon on, on one verse, and particularly one where the whole verse is about demons, right? Uh, so, that's what we're doing today, though. So I want you to follow along in James chapter 2. And, and just for a little context, we're going to be and uh, start picking up in verse 17 this morning. It says this, James. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We're going to stop right there. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, enlighten our minds and prepare our hearts to understand and receive uh, these words of your servant James, which are ultimately your words. Uh, May they move us to be passionate followers of Christ. May they correct us if we need correcting. May they uh, encourage us to pursue you, to rest in you, to find our joy and, and just an understanding, and the, the real understanding of the gospel and the fruits of, of what we see in the gospel. And, and we pray this in the righteous name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's a method of evangelism called the Kennedy questions. Uh, it used to be on campuses, college campuses, that were used all the time. Campus Crusade, which is now Crew, and I know Crew stands for nothing, but the older ones in that room know that it stands for Crusade still. Anyway, it was commonly used in college, and it began by asking this question if, if you were to die today, right? Someone walks up to you and they ask you this question. If you were to die today, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And people would give a percentage using, I don't know, 35%, 95%, some, some sort of number. <clears throat> and the follow up question, regardless of what percentage you, you gave, was, Why should God let you into heaven? It's worded something like that, right? And, and many answered it using some sort of, you know, credentials, if you will, right? they they point to, you know, because I was baptized or because of my, my confirmation class I graduated from. And others would, would appeal to being generally, a, I'm a generally a good person, you know, i am never murdered anyone, or I, I treat people pretty well, that kind of thing. Uh, most people, though, would, would say something like, because I believe in God. That's why. You see, at the, at the heart of it, James in our passage here, as we're getting through this the last week, and again next week we'll get into it, but, but James is also concerned with with how professing believers understand what true and saving faith is and, and what the fruit of that faith actually looks like. What, what is it that we can see that becomes visual in that sense? Now, now don't misunderstand me here today, but before we go forward, I want to make one thing very clear. Correct knowledge, orthodox theology is tremendously important. It is. You and I must believe in God as, his, he, as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. I don't mean perfectly. There are going to be things you don't know about God until and, and so you stand before God and able to ask him, able to know fully, right? But there are some really significant things in scripture that you must know to be true about God that are absolutely orthodox. But in our, our text here, James makes clear that there, are more, there is more to genuine faith than, than simply affirming sound doctrine. And what James is in the midst of saying here is, is he's getting this, it's, it's like he's saying this, hey, you, you, have, you have faith, you believe that you are a Christian, and the reason that you believe that you are a Christian is that you believe right things about God, right? Great, that's good. He doesn't say that's bad, that's good. But, but let me ask you even here today, is, is that what your faith looks like as well? Is it something like you, you've memorized all 107 of the Shorter Catechism questions, and I, I really hope that you, you, you have. Don't, don't hear me as saying this is wrong, because it, it is great benefit to you to do so. It is good for you in all kinds of ways that we want, but, but, but is it your understanding that somehow that's saving faith, that you're going to point to something like that, or a mere mental agreement to write theology? And, and if so, then what James is, is saying here ought to frighten you, if that's the case. Listen again to what James says in verse 19. You believe that God is one. O-N-E. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons believe in God. Demons believe that God is one. Demons are monotheistic. Demons have right theology. In fact, demons know more about theology, more about God than, than any of us do, than any humans. You, you remember back in Matthew 8 when Jesus is, is casting out the, the demons from the, the crazy man in the cemetery and, 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 and he sends them into the herd of pigs and immediately the pigs go off the cliff and drown themselves as pigs, uh, right? So in Matthew 8, 29, he t- tells us this, that the demons cried out to Jesus and here's what they said, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? you catch that? They call him the son of God. They know who he is. They acknowledge who he is. They, they acknowledge his power over them. They even acknowledge that, that there is something coming later. right? They know something of the end, that they're going to be tormented later, punished later. right? If you were to put out a test on their understanding of who Jesus is, A plus on their theology, absolutely. But they're not holy. Scripture makes clear that demons will have no part in the kingdom of God. And knowing about God hasn't changed them. They, they continue to remain enemies of the Lord. Now there's a few conclusions that we can make from this. The first is this, is no matter how much you know about God in the Bible, it is no sure sign of saving faith. And again, don't misunderstand this. You, You ought to be growing in your knowledge of God. You really ought to be. Each week, each month, each, each, each year, right, and, and so on, you ought to be growing in what you know about God and your pursuit of Him, your relationship with God. Uh, some years ago, I can remember talking with a friend of mine, not a believer, um, and, and he made this observation about his father, and his father is a long-time professing believer, Uh, And and yet his father was quite dishonest in all sorts of dealings and very ignorant of the scriptures. He didn't seem to know much of anything. And my friend's comment about this, uh, about his father, was this, how can my dad claim to care so much about God and so much about the Bible and yet care nothing about what is actually written in God's word? Care nothing to know about God. When I heard this, my first thought was, yeah, how could he? And then my second thought was a bit personally convicting. It's a good question, isn't it? How can I claim to care so much about God and so much about the Scriptures and yet not be reading and not be studying it on a regular basis? Because you need to understand that the Scriptures, God's Word, this is food for your soul. You you don't just need it one time in your life. You you need it constantly. And you know this from experience. Whenever you you, you stop, right? Whenever you fall away from, from being in your Bible, you start to feel that distance from God. And so let us resolve to know more of Scripture tomorrow than we do today. That is a good thing. And so again, I, I do not intend to be anti-intellectual. I do not intend to be anti-theological by any means when I say this. But no matter how much you know about God, it is no sure sign of saving faith in Christ. After all, again, if anyone knows a lot about God, then surely it's, it's Satan, Right? You most believe that we, we learn Satan's history in Ezekiel twenty eight twelve, which which says that he was the model of perfection, that he was full of wisdom as an angelic being, that he was perfect in beauty. And, and yet, this was all before wickedness was found in him. Right? It, it says Satan was full of wisdom. And there's no reason to, to think that his memory has suddenly gone out and he remembers nothing. And, and Satan knows the truth about God in a way that no man will know in this life. Satan existed long before Tim Keller started writing books, right? He existed before Jonathan Edwards, before Paul and and Moses. He knows these things about God. We we know from the book of Job, right, that Satan spoke face to face with God. He was able to observe what God was doing in Job's life and to observe it in a way that no one else standing around would have been able to see. You know, that Job's friends didn't see, that Job didn't see. We, we learn in the Gospels that Satan knows the Word of God and he knows it so well that he's able to use God's Word to try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. You, you see, there are no atheists among the demons. Not a one. And so again, no matter how much you know about God, it is no clear sign of salvation. Be honest though, do you find yourself judging a person's spiritual state by the depth of their theological knowledge? And that guy can you know, quote three verses. Oh, he must be a really mature Christian. Right? Is that the only way you discern a believer from an unbeliever, a mature Christian, from a baby Christian? And I, I mean, again, this is not a negative. It's good to memorize things. It'd be great if we could all just bring things out of memory. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing in our life, but, but it is no sure sign of, uh, of salvation. And, and I hope we don't judge people like that way, that way right? Because um, people might be able to speak about the gospel and the work of salvation in the hearts of men and yet, and yet do so completely unaffected by the grace of God. The second conclusion that we make from what we know of the knowledge of demons is this, is that having a sense of God's majesty, God's power, that also is not a sure sign of salvation. Demons also know the majesty and the power of, of, of God. That, that's why our verse says there at the very end, right? The demons believe and they shudder. They shudder, right? That's an emotional response uh, in the demons' feel that Demons are so sure of God's power, they are so sure of the coming judgment, that, that this fear leads them to shudder, James says. Right? They, they approach this with far more fear than what many Christians feel when they are told about the, the coming punishment, coming judgment for sin, but because they understand God's holiness and the power better than even we do. And yet they remain enemies of God. Another question to consider is this, in our understanding of, is, is our understanding of love. Certainly right theology of Christ is necessary, right? If, if we are to, to love him right, we, we must think rightly about him. I, I can't just make up some idea about God, right? The spaghetti monster, someone tried to do at one point, right? Or this own concept of God, and worship that concept of God, and feel like that's actually worshiping the Lord. Um, people have tried that over the years, but you can't do that. Um. If I am to truly love God, then I must love God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures to us. And yet I must ask myself, and and you as well, why do you love Jesus? You ever thought about that? Why do I love Jesus? Jonathan Edwards is actually helpful here. He he speaks of an experience called self-love. It is such a powerful force in the hearts of people that it can without the grace of God, cause people to love those who love them. Luke, Luke 6.32 says this, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. It's a completely natural response, not a supernatural one. And so if your love for God today comes merely from your feeling that God loves you, then your love for God may be merely self-love. Now that's not going to say that you want to throw that out and it's of no importance, right? But is that the mere reason you do that? We, we, we might say, well, what about 1 John four nineteen, right? Which says we love because God first loved us. And that's true. It's absolutely true. God's love for us is the cause of our being able to love God and others because of what all his love has actually accomplished for us, right? His love for you leads to his plan of redemption before, you know, time exists. His love for you leads to his being born in, in human flesh and dwelling among us. His love for you leads to him going to the cross and his, his death there His love for you leads to His giving you faith and indwelling you with the Holy Spirit and and the resurrection and so on and so on and so on. It leads to all these things. But do you simply love God because someone said to you, you know what? God loves you. So you should love Him. And I hope not. I mean, yes, God loves us first and and He has freed us from sin to love Him and to, to love others. But our love for him ought to be motivated by something more significant than mere self-love. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Consider a situation where a, a man loves a woman so much, incredibly much, so much so that he brings her flowers every day, uh, that he writes her love letters constantly, that he tells her how beautiful she is every day, that he sings her praises to anyone who will listen obnoxiously so. Um, And just how wonderful she is. And he spends all of his time just obsessing over her while she has absolutely no affections for him, no concern for him. And then one day he quits showering her with love. She misses his affections and finally comes to say, Bob, I do love you. Love me again. But most would observe here, right, that her love is not genuine for for Bob, but really it's love for herself. She, she loves him because he makes her feel special. She, she loves him. She loves being loved by him, not him. So self-love makes interesting romantic movies, but it's, it's not the love of real faith. Now, if you're anything like me at this point, you're, you're wondering, can we just get to the point, Brian? Like, what is the sure sign of God's grace in my heart? Can we just get to that part, right? What is the difference between the way a demon believes about God in the way that a Christian, a true Christian, believes about God. And, and here it is. The difference between the experience of demons and the experience of genuine faith is, is that demons are blind to the beauty of Christ. They have no affections for God. They're unwilling to obey God, right? And They, they have to do whatever he says, but they don't willingly obey God. The Demons may know more about God than even the greatest theologians who have ever lived. They absolutely do, actually. And demons may see the majesty of God, but they are incapable of having true love for God. Consider Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that's not written to demons to begin with, but it does help us understand this distinction. There is here a confession not just of knowledge about God. It might look like that at first, but but an understanding that Jesus is is what? What are we acknowledging? That Jesus is Lord. And there's belief, not not only in the mind regarding the resurrection of Jesus, but in the heart. It goes deeper. True, True believers have affections for God that demons can never have. And what I mean by affections is this, when your heart is filled with, with thoughts of God, there is a, a sense of this overwhelming beauty of God and, and an altogether loveliness of God. When, when, you feel, when you feel yourself love the person of Christ, that, that is an unmistakable sign of God's grace in your heart, not just for what he can do for you or has done for you, but because of who he is, we we, we said before that, that demons know things about God, but they know nothing about what God is like, right? In a in a true, deeper sense, they they cannot know what God is like in the same way that a blind man has no idea what colors are are really like. A, a blind man can learn about colors. Someone can tell them, try to describe them. He can memorize the names of them. He can you know repeat descriptions so that anyone who's not doesn't know him deeply, might be like, yeah, he knows about colors. He told me about colors. I'm pretty sure he knows about colors, right? But he doesn't know that. He doesn't know the sense of their loveliness. He he can't experience that precisely because he is blind. Demons cannot have affections for God in response to the greatness of God because they cannot see the greatness of God. And and neither can an unbeliever until God gives them eyes of faith to to see the Lord in that way. See, the sense of of genuine love for Christ is a, a sure sign Of of saving faith. To to put this simple, as I possibly can, um, well, yes, our response to the gospel is that we are grateful to God and all that he has done for us. Our love for God, though, is not motivated by gratitude out of escaping hell, even, which we deserve because of our sin. But rather, our love for God, for Christ, and and for the the Trinity, right, is is that sense of the beauty and the holiness of of who Jesus is. That, That only a heart changed by the grace and the mercy of God can can actually experience, which raises this question, right? Where, where are your affections today? Many of you know this story in my life because I've told it many times, right? But on June 5th, 1995, when I was uh, 17 years old, I, I went to a Promise Keepers conference in the eighth wonder of the world, that is the Astrodome, uh, and there an ex-NFL player named Miles McPherson, I had to look him up later, uh, was speaking and he began to talk about the horrors of hell. And he went into all these details about it. And, and as a 17-year-old, it sounded like the most miserable thing in the world. And I believed every word that he said. And I thought uh, the idea of going to hell was terrifying to me. And it should be, right? But he, he warned that if, I, if we didn't come forward to pray this prayer, there, there would be a chance that on our way home, the car could crash. And if I died at that time, I would go to eternity for hell just because I decided to put off this decision. And so when he gave his invitation, his altar call, I raised my hand, I walked forward, I prayed a prayer, and I signed a card confirming the decision that I had made to be a Christian. And, and while I will say the Lord absolutely used this event in my life in good ways because it put me into a process uh, that was good, I, I don't look at this at the moment that God actually redeemed me, and I'll tell you why. That day, I was so convinced if I died, I would go to hell, and, and, and I love myself. I do. Myself does not want to go to hell. And I would have done anything this guy had told me if I believed it would keep me out of hell. I would have permanently dyed my hair blue. I would have memorized the book of Leviticus. I I would have cut off my own thumbs if I thought that's what would have saved me in that moment. My motivation that day was 100% to escape hell, and that's it. I didn't care one bit about who Jesus was. I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't care who Jesus was. I just didn't want to go to hell. It wasn't until sometime later after studying scriptures with, with some other Christians and, and hearing the word preached at the church I was going to, that I began to gain a, a right knowledge of God, a right knowledge of who Jesus is. And I, I began to really have this love for Jesus that I had not experienced before. You see, through the, the word of God, I began to see the beauty of Christ. I began to see the amazing works of God in creation and even more so the great mercy of God as it's revealed to us in the gospel, in the, in the words of the Bible. I began to actually love Jesus. And my main motivation for salvation was no longer to escape hell, although I certainly wanted that, want that, uh, but to be with Jesus forever, to be with God forever, to be in his kingdom, to worship him, to know him. And I know it might seem like a small thing, but this is a very significant distinction. Borrowing from, from Jonathan Edwards, I, I want you to listen to how he describes the beauty of God. He says, the beauty of God consists primarily in his holiness or moral excellence, This holiness, this moral excellence of of God is what demons hate about God. It's precisely because God is holy that they do hate Him. Um, Those who reject the gospel in the same way will one day know that Jesus is Lord, right? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, and yet they will not see His beauty, His loveliness. There will not be affections for Him. In in that day, all the knowledge that people have of God will be worth absolutely nothing if they have not love for God in their hearts. Have, they have not true saving faith. It, it is this stirring of the affections for Jesus that is the distinction between the saving faith of believers and the mere knowledge of the demons that James is calling belief here. So, to put it another way, besides genuine uh, affections for Christ, you know, what, what is the outworking of faith that James is getting at? That What do we want to see in the life of a believer? And, and notice I ask, what's the outworking of it? I'm not here asking what's the cause of faith. I'm not asking, you know, I, I just want to know what's the outworking, what's the fruit of it, and the answer to it is this. The, the outworking of genuine faith is good works, and that's what James is getting at. We saw it last week. We're going to see it again in a different way next week, and we see it this week. It's, it's obedience to God's Word. Not perfect obedience. Not even just some scorable level that you want to try to put on it, but this desire for it. That's what your aim is. And it's obedience to God, to His Word. And, and James is saying that if you, if you want to understand faith, don't just consider what you theologically confirm. We, we've seen even the demons can do that. They will smoke us in a theological test. And they do it better than right, any of us could ever dream of. Instead, look at how your life is lived. Look at your, the, your affections. Look at you know, how do you or, or do you not earnestly seek to obey the Lord? And so then I, I want to make one point of distinction here because I I don't want you to walk away and unnecessarily doubt. And I think a lot of these conversations in James can lead us down that road. I I also don't want to give you some sense of false idea of understanding of salvation. Years ago, when I was talking with a friend about my text, about uh, this text, about how Paul in in Romans is is dealing with justification before God, and, and James is here discussing how we see that justification before God, how it's observable as real, uh, we were discussing this in, in this historically reformed understanding of what justification is, right? Yes, true knowledge of, uh, of the gospel, which we have seen demons can possess. And, and, and also, right, agreement that, that, that knowledge is, that it's true, that it's not some made-up crazy idea, uh, but we've seen also, right, demons can affirm that it's true. And, and then he shared a, a word with me that I'd never heard before in my life. Um, fiducia. I might be saying that wrong. Uh, fiducia. I love the sound of the word. I remember that. It reminded me of that old Dr. Pepper commercial, right? Mananana. Fiducia. You can hear it. It doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, fiducia is, is this Latin word, and it's something that demons cannot experience. Fiducia is something that you and I cannot possess apart from God giving it to us. Fiducia is this, this genuine trust in God. It's this reliance upon God for our salvation. It is that that personal dependence on the grace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. It's when we stop striving to obtain righteousness in ourselves and we rest in the truth of the gospel. Fiducia is something only the elect of God possess. And and fiducia is a a genuine and a living faith in in our lives, as James kind of calls it last week. The, the, the outflow then of true God-given fiducia, that, that is, right is God-given faith, is a love for Jesus Christ which is seen most clearly in good works done to the glory of God. And so the question that I keep asking myself this week is this, Brian, who or what are your affections really for? Who is clearly my Lord, right? Who is clearly my Lord in the deepest sense of, of, of who do I seek to obey? Who speaks into my life and I say, okay, whether I like it or not, true affection for for God always leads to obedience to God. Good works which are joyously driven by your affections for God. Good works which are accomplished by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, not your own doing. Good works which show that your satisfaction is in Christ alone. A lot of these stories go back, right? When I was in... uh, college, I remember attempting the Navigator's memory Bible verse system. I don't know if they still have it or not. Uh, included in this system, though, was, was uh, the requirement to memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a uh, wonderful verse about the way God works in salvation. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, and it it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, it wasn't until seminary that my pastor at the time suggested, you know, You know, you ought to probably memorize the 10th verse there as well. All right. Right? He he said you need to do so so that you can see that that God-given faith not only gives complete forgiveness of of my sin, but but also empowers me to obey God, to love others, to to live a life that is about the glory of God. And, And verse 10 says this. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, you you see here that good works, they've been prepared by God in advance for you to do. And and when our faith is real, then our affections are are for the person of Christ. And when those affections for Jesus are true, good good works are the fruit that that flow out of that. And that's what James keeps getting at. Now, my my prayer has been that you and I this morning would learn that, that true faith gives rise to deep affections for God or at least shallow affections for God. It, it gives rise to a love for the Father and the Son and the, and the Holy Spirit. And, and if you never experienced these affections for God, I truly never experienced these, I, I encourage you to plead with God. Pray, ask for this. Wholeheartedly ask that He would give you affections for Him. Assurance, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful thing. It is the gift of the Lord but only if it's genuine. So you've also got to ask yourself, right? Do, do, do you love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Do I? And again, don't be overcritical. Don't do that thing where you're like, not enough, so God must hate me. Don't do that thing. I know you're, so many of you are prone to that. But if you find that's, that's true, rejoice in that. Be thankful to the Lord that He has given you those affections. He has given you a love for Him. And, and, and seek Him, right? Seek Him in His Word. Seek Him in prayer. Seek him in the means of grace, right? The, 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 the word, the preaching of the word. In prayer, the Lord's Supper. And, and then rest in the, the confidence that God has redeemed you. Rest in the confidence that you are his both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we look to you and we look to you alone for the forgiveness of sin. We, we look to you to see and we see loveliness. We we see power, we see might, we see mercy. We see the most glorious, wonderful of all. We can't even qualify that in creation, just as all, because you're not creation. Father, we thank you for accomplishing salvation for us and for all the joy and the hope and the love for you and others that flows from what you've accomplished for us. Where we see deficiencies in this, we ask that you would, you would strengthen us, that you would motivate us, not by some sense of guilt or wanting to earn anything, but but, but move in us as the way only You can. That we might love You. We might submit our lives more to You as You call us to in Your Word.
1: And Father, as we go
0: from here today, we ask that you, you stir our affections for You. Renew our love for You. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.